Every book tells two stories. The first is the tale inside the page. The second is a story about its reader. Each book that we choose to keep on our shelves tells a chapter in the story of our lives. So join me, Alex Cool, as I speak to authors, illustrators, publishers and booksellers about their shelf life. My guest on Shelf Life today is Naomi Ishiguru, a bookseller turned writer. Escape Roots, a collection of short stories, was published in 2020, and her debut novel, Common Ground, is published on the 25th of March, 2021. Naomi, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm well today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk oh, about all these books. You're very welcome. Uh, should we first of all, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and a bit about Common Ground as well, whilst, whilst we're at it? Yeah, great. So um, I am a, a writer, obviously. Um, I have yeah, written two books, as you just said. Um, Escape Roots, a short story collection, came out last year um, just at the beginnings of lockdown, uh, which was fun. Uh, but I did get to do a few events. And this year, yeah, um, Common Ground comes out, um, which is my first novel. Um, I used to be a bookseller at Mr. B's Emporium of Reading Delights in Bath, um, which was um, an amazing few years. And yeah, that's kind of, that's me really, not very exciting. Um, yeah, but Common Ground is, um, it's a novel that centers around a friendship um, between two characters from very different backgrounds. Um, one of them is called Stanley and he's a child from suburbia and he, um, is struggling with bullies as the new scholarship kid at a private school and Charlie is a few years older than him and he is he lives on a traveler site uh, on the outskirts of the town where Stan is growing up and he's Romany and um, so these two very different lives but they happen to meet uh, one afternoon on the common um, when Stan's bike breaks and Charlie stops to help him fix it and then uh, we follow their friendship as it sort of unfolds from that point um, and um, sort of into adulthoods and when they're both sort of adults in London and sort of wrestling with the different um, opportunities that uh, the city does or doesn't offer them um, so it's really yeah a book about friendship and solidarity across cultural boundaries and yeah I hope people enjoy it. It's a really great book and Charlie specifically is is one of those characters that as soon as you meet him he's just sort of instantly charismatic and you, you want to be his friend so uh, I, I highly recommend it to people who are listening. Um, first question, two bits of admin that we've got to get through, are you a big reader? Very much so, yes, I would say that. Um, I've read less in the last year than I usually do, I think a lot of people probably found that but yeah books are hugely important to me in my life. Um, I don't read as quickly as a lot of people. I, I guess I read, I, yeah, I read about sort of three books a month, I'd say on average, but I know people that read like two or three books a week. Um, I like to save a books and I, I, th I think I read a bit more slowly, but that's not really a reflection on, yeah, they, they mean a lot to me. <laughs> yeah. Now I've asked you to pick seven books uh, that mm. either influenced or changed your life in some way. Uh, can you tell me how you went about choosing them? Yeah, I was, it was really tricky, actually. Um, I think everyone probably says that. I think I was trying to think about books that, I sort of thought about my life now, because um, I sort of thought of the theme like shelf life, it's, it's my life as my bookshelf um, explains it. And I was thinking what seven books sort of got me to the, got, you know, made my life up to the, to, to the way it is now, like which books would I not be in this life without? Um, if that makes any sense. Um, so they're, they're all the books that have sort of gone towards making making me who I am today, I would say. Um, yeah. On that note, shall we uh, go straight into your first one? Yeah, um, of course. So uh, my first, the first book I chose is I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, um, which is a lovely, uh, it was written in the 50s, but it's set in the 30s. Um, so it has the feel of a classic and it is um, takes the form of the diary of a 17 year old girl called Cassandra Mortmain. And it's one of those beautiful books that you can just sink into. Um, there's so much detail and you really get to know the characters. And it's about Cassandra's very eccentric family who are um, living in this sort of wreck of a Norman castle uh, in, 
the Suffolk countryside and there's a lot of just fantastic kind of coming of age stuff things about um, her relationship with her sister and with her dad who's a writer and it's a fantastic book about sort of finding your voice as a writer because she's writing her diary and her dad is this writer with writer's block um, and also about growing up um, as a woman as a human uh, in the world um, so yeah I've read it every year I think since I was about 12 <laughs> and um, yeah it's just a it's a firm firm favorite I would say yeah uh, you say it's about a, a writer is it yeah was it the book that made you want to write I don't know about I think I've always wanted to write um probably honestly it was like Harry Potter or something very obvious that made me <laughs> made me want to write that you know everyone <laughs> has read um I think I did yeah I didn't necessarily think of it as a book about writing the first time I read it um because there's more kind of obvious aspects of the plot there are these two sort of young American men that turn up and there's a sort of romance plot but it will kind of goes horribly wrong and there's like a farcical thing where one of them gets mistaken for a bear um and it yeah there's and there's a lot of kind of beautiful stuff about growing up so I think I saw it more of a more of a book about coming of age and sisterhood and kind of first love and first love sort of going wrong and then it was only coming back to it as an adult I sort of much I noticed that it was actually about writing because her father's a writer but he's got writer's block and he's he, you know he was this kind of gifted writer and his book is seen as a modernist classic but he can't get words out anymore and he's just sort of this shuffly old man in this castle tower in a wrapped in a blanket sort of reading murder mysteries all day and not able to write and she's trying to, you know, write this diary. The whole book is her diary. And, and it sort of tries to capture the act of writing. And as the book goes on, the father sort of gets over his writer's block in various ways um, and manages to start writing again by the end. So there's something about that sort of, yeah, continuous diary format and that sort of unfolding narrative in the present and, and hearing her, the main character, sort of find her voice as a writer. It's all about writing. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't notice that until I was about 22. So after about 10, about 10 goes <laughs> of reading it. <laughs> do, you, do you think one of the reasons you might have identified uh, with it is because of having a father as a writer? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely the book that I chose in this, this pile that is probably the most like me in a way um like the voice as well um of the main character is like quite particular and I think I was I was probably quite like that as a teenager she's very sort of idiosyncratic and um one of the other characters quite unkindly describes her as a consciously naive at a certain point and I think I don't know my short story just collection was described as winsomely written or something by somebody at a certain point I was like oh that's not a wild step from consciously naive so I think it definitely feels like a, a book that and the fact that she has a it's about fathers and daughters who write and that kind of relationship of sort of inheriting a kind of yeah need to write and um I think the way they write as well like her dad is this like famous modernist writer who they discuss his work at un in universities and stuff and she's writing this diary that seems sort of I don't know to her it seems silly or frivolous in comparison and she can write pages and pages just sort of without thinking too hard and he's agonizing over one sentence and I think that that sort of it, it doesn't it isn't a, a perfect paradigm for me and my dad but he's much more of a I don't know, I see him as quite sort of literary. And I, I think the way I write is is sort of a bit, is a bit, um, I don't know, it's chattier, I think. So um, yeah, I think I think that that's a very, I, that was a very long answer, but um, yeah, I capture the castle definitely um, has that, that parallel. Mm. I'm interested as well. You said about how you reread it almost every year. Mm. Is there something you get out of rereading it? Is it, do you find new stuff every time? I think so, yeah. Like that, discovering that it was about writing after so many years of reading it um, when I was older and less interested in the kind of the teenage kind of love aspect of the plot. Um, yeah, I think it's because it's quite comforting. It's a nice comforting space to come back to. Um, yeah, I think I do realise different things about it every time. It's so richly written that I think it's one of those books that the life of the characters and the life of the world has a it feels so kind of yeah three-dimensional and and sort of emotionally thought out that it's kind of like having a yeah a different coming be able to come back to a different emotional experience each time and kind of understand it anew um yeah definitely there's also a, a nice um passage in the middle where she, she they have these like midsummer rites that they do every year as children 
Um, and she sort of does these midsummer rites and then realizes that they just feel a bit silly now. And that's going to be the last time she does it because she's sort of outgrown them. Um, so I do tend to read it at midsummer as well, because <laughs> that, that particular scene. Um, yeah. It's your own midsummer rite. Uh, yes. <laughs> what's your second choice? My second choice was NW by Zadie Smith. Um, so this is, um, I chose this because it was the first Zadie Smith book that I ever read and it's quite different to her other books in many ways. Um, but it really kind of makes an effort to capture life in London at a certain point in time. I think it's around 2012 that it was published. So I guess sort of 2010-ish, um, that whole kind of era. And it's it's a real mishmash of styles. Like it's sort of like, it's quite some stream of consciousnessy. Um, there are, it feels like some kind of modernist experiment. Um, it's very kind of collage-y and you sort of dip in and out of different perspectives of these sort of four central characters. Um, and it really captures the texture of how people sort of think and speak in the city um, in a way that I haven't really come across with other books. Um, but um, yeah, but it basically follows the lives of these four characters and they all start um, living on the same estate and I think going to the same school from what I remember and then their lives take them in very different directions. Um, so one of them kind of ends up homeless and the other ones are like a barrister living in this Victorian house. Um, and it, it, yeah, that, they, their lives kind of interconnect, but that thing of having started in the same place and you're all sort of still in the same area, but your lives just have kind of fragmented um, so drastically. I think it, it kind of captures that feeling really well. Um, but yeah, I, I chose it because it's, it's set in that part of London as well, which is where I'm where I'm from. <laughs> and were could you uh, see the areas that you, you grew up in? Were they really vivid and you could recognise them? Totally, yeah. And this was the book that taught me that you can include things like that in fiction. You don't have to be a middle-aged American man and sort of writing in that voice, um, <laughs> as I sort of thought, like, you know, on the New Yorker website, like reading all these um, short stories and stuff like that. That's, that's amazing if that's, if that's what you're writing, but you don't have to. You don't have, you know, your characters don't have to just be like drinking whiskey and you know, libraries or whatever. Yeah, they, they can be walking around streets that you recognize and that's proper enough, you know. Um, so I, I sort of loved that about the book. Like I'd never seen Kilburn High Road in a literary novel before. And I was like, what? Um, this is, you can do this. Um, and that thing of specificity, she's so good on the on capturing the details. And I think I liked that because it was, I think it's quite interesting. It's, it, she wrote it in 2010, which is when she'd moved to America, I think. I don't know much about um, yeah, I, I might be completely wrong, but I think she became like an, a professor at NYU at that point. And I sort of wondered, like, it's it's such a concerted effort to capture Northwest London in, in a book. And all these details are so precise and specific. And yeah, it was just interesting. I was like, if I was living on the other side of the world, I might, I might have that impulse as well of wanting to just capture a specific place at a specific time and just remember all of those details. So yeah, I loved it for that reason. You chose to, in common ground, to, I think, Newford is a fictional place that, that, that is, Sam yeah. and Charlie mm. grew up in. What made mm. you go for a fictional location versus a real location? Yeah. Oh, it was a, so, it was such a tricky decision. <laughs> um, that's a really good question because it took me a long time. It was essentially, there's a, there's a football team that appear in the final scene almost of the book. I think it's the second to last scene. And I just got so tied up in knots. I was like, if it's a real football team, people will think, why are all these characters not like, because people know the makeup of a football team, of a town's football team at a certain time. And it was originally Guildford, but then I was thinking, well, it can't be Guildford City because, you know, these actual players would be here and it doesn't, I don't, yeah, there's sort of, there's a pub landlord whose son is on the team and I was like, well, that isn't the case. So, and I got very tied up in knots about the football team and everything, also loads of issues around sort of veracity and time period and what, just all kind of collided around then. And I just thought, oh, I've just got to invent a whole town. And by then it hadn't, it sort of warped from being Guildford anyway, because I'd included, like, I was like, oh, there needs to be a street there. And I, you know, it all got a bit confused. So I just decided it was better to make up my own, my own sort of, yeah slightly invented English town I love that that's a great answer mm. um, I, I don't know what I was expecting to hear but the, the <laughs> fact that a football team <laughs> led yeah. you uh, into inventing a whole town is um, mm. is brilliant uh, of course though London appears and it is mm. it is obviously quite real um, mm. was that based on growing up 
in London or was it was it in, were you in different parts um the parts of London are not they're not actually specified that much in the book I didn't um yeah I didn't want to tie it to specific locations I think there's just quite a lot of sort of central London um yeah I think that was very much based on my experience of London not necessarily growing up in London but just like post being a student and thinking god should I stay here and just seeing a lot of my you know entering the jobs market and and all of that um yeah I think I think that whole world of London was something um that I don't know that that worries me and that I get quite angry about a lot so I think that was something I wanted to capture and that's something that you you do see the seeds of in in um not the seeds of but um in NW a lot of the characters are yeah she she kind of captures that sort of beginning of just sort of extreme capitalism and people kind of yeah it, it not being a place where people are looked after by the system necessarily um I don't know why I'm saying that right. That's not quite what I mean. But yeah, um, I think that was another reason why I chose that book as well. Because um, it, it kind of yeah captures that really well. What's your next choice? My next choice um, was Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close by Jonathan Safran Foer. Um, so for anyone who hasn't read this, it's, um, it's a 9-11 book, but it's quite different from what you would expect a 9-11 book to be. So it's from the perspective of, oh, I should have checked this. I think in my head he's nine, but I may have um, got that wrong. A, a young child anyway, called Oscar. And his father has died in 9-11. Um, and um, he's trying to come to terms with that, but he's quite a quirky individual and he's extremely sort of developed and intelligent in some ways. And he's just su still such a child in others. Um, and he's not, he's not really ready to acknowledge like his grief or loss. And um, he ends up sort of going on this very quirky um, self sort of invented quest around New York City, um, which sort of unbeknownst to him ends up being a sort of journey to um, come to terms with the enormous tragedy that has kind of hit the city and his family personally. And it's quite a quirky book. It's got loads of pictures and it, yeah, it's written in a really um, quite fun sort of almost childish sort of engaging way. Like there's lots of images and Oscar's um, uh, not diary, but yeah, like he goes into a shop and one of the things that becomes significant to him is he, you know, there's um, sheets of paper where people try out pens in stationery shops. Um, and that actually like as appears as an image in the book with this sort of this piece of paper with all these bits of handwriting, different pieces of handwriting, writing in pens of different colours. Um, so it's quite playful like that, I think is what I mean. I used to work mm. in a stationary shop and you wouldn't be able to include some of those uh, images <laughs> that are drawn on. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Uh, you, you say, I mean, you say Oscar, he's nine years old um, as the lead character. And in the beginning of Common Ground, you've got Stan, who mm. is 12, 13. Uh, yeah. mm. Did you, how did you find the difference between writing an adult character and a child character? Or did you not let it worry you? Um, I think, oh, that's an interesting question. Um I think I've written from the perspective of children before um, quite a lot. So it comes quite naturally. And I think, I don't know, something to do with the, the way I read. I read quite a lot of children's books and YA um, and I teach children. So I think um, that it does just come quite naturally. Um, just something to do with, yeah, the, the way I see books maybe and storytelling. Um, I've always quite liked that perspective. And I like, I like the way that you can see the status quo of the adult world in a slightly different way as well. Um, yeah, I think I didn't, I tried to not let it worry me, but part of Common Ground was an effort to capture that feeling of, of being a teenager as well, um, in a way, because I, I was, I guess I was feeling nostalgic for my own teenage years and it's set in the time, so that it's 2003. Um, so that, that kind of early noughties, time um which i chose for sort of reasons of theme around um you know general politics of the last 10 years but also just because i wanted to capture that just that feeling of being a, a young like a like a child or a teenager at that time um in in just kind of wanting to set it all down on paper before it sort of disappeared from my memory <laughs> at some point <laughs> 
Did um, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, uh, obviously you say about Oscar going around sort of New York and finding his like new community and friends and people all over the place. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you ever want, did it ever make you go? Have you been? Have you re revisited some of the scenes that he's seen? I haven't been to, well, I ha I've been to New York for about sort of 48 hours, very long time ago when my plane was changing and I sort of was like, quick, see everything. But that was before <laughs> I'd read the book. Um, but I think, I mean, obviously I would, I would love to go and, and um, sort of read and see, see the city after reading it. Cause it feels like such a New York book and that image of Central Park as this um, sort of big blank space in the center of the city, I think just works really well um, in so many ways um, thematically with the, with the book. Um, so I'd love to, I'd love to go definitely. Um, yeah, I wonder if it would feel disappointingly different or something. I actually wrote a terrible short story set in New York after reading this book and um, I sort of read it back and I was like, no, it just feels like extremely loud and incredibly close though. Like it doesn't feel like New York. I've just copied, I've set it in the world of extremely loud and incredibly close. I haven't set it in New York and I had to sort of delete the whole thing. <laughs> um, so yeah. Mm. What's your next choice? Uh, the next choice was Brooklyn by Colm Toybin. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Um, How I pronounce it. So let's, okay. let's, let's go with it. <laughs> Colin Toybin, I'm going to say. Um, yeah, he's a brilliant, uh, brilliant writer. And I should have, yeah, I should have looked up how to correctly pronounce his name. And I'm sorry. Um, but Brooklyn is, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful book about a young girl called Eilish Lacey. And um, she is set in the 50s. It's a historical novel because it was published in the noughties at some point, um, but set in the 1950s and she's growing up in um, this small town in Ireland and there's just no place for her really economically, like she can't find a job and there just isn't really, like there's no one, there's, there isn't really a life for her there that would be sort of fulfilling. Um, so she ends up going, emigrating to Brooklyn um, where, you know, the, she, she, tra she does night school and she trains and she finds that yeah, she has this job in a department store. And this is sort of, there's many more kind of opportunities and employment prospects for her. Um, but it captures homesickness, like, like nothing I've read before, um, or since I think that feeling of having to go somewhere to make something of your life and become, you know, a, a broaden your horizons and be able to stand on your own two feet, but also that, that sort of, yeah, she's, she's leaving her mother and her sister behind in the 50s. So going back via a boat, like it's it's a huge thing and she doesn't know when she'll be able to do it again, when she'll see them again. Um, and it yeah, it captures that sort of pull in two directions so well. You mentioned when you sort of sent it across to me that uh, it, it reminds you of the homesickness feeling that you get sometimes. Where is home for you because uh, obviously you've grew up in London you did you've w done Bath you went to mm. university at East Anglia where is home yeah good, good research <laughs> um yeah I don't know that is I think that's why I'm I why I love this book as well so much and why do you keep coming back to it um because it is it is a book that asks that question because for, for her she's like is Ireland home or is Brooklyn home and there are sort of two selves that have come of age in both spaces and she's sort of trying to choose one and reconcile that and I think yeah on a much less grand scale because there's not an ocean and a giant sort of boat ride and like there's not like a ship and yeah I can very much just get on a train you know in in not lockdown times um but yeah I, I'm not sure um yeah I've I I feel like because I grew up in London it should be London but I've never really felt like I've I fit here necessarily and then I did feel very like I, I fitted in Bath in the West Country like I've always gone on holiday there as a child and it it sort of means a lot to me but then lots of things you know like like jobs and all of that kind of pull you back towards um the city and London so yeah it's an interesting question I, I think it's one of these things that that fascinates me like where where is home <laughs> yeah and are you are you living in London now I'm living in London now yeah um, I always sort of say that slightly apologetically. I feel like my books, I always complain about London and everyone's like, where are you? I'm like, oh, I'm in London. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hi. Um, you, you mentioned about how Brooklyn is, is a historical novel mm. and 
in a way, common ground is a little bit because it's set at the beginning of the, uh, the century, but it's your own, it's within your own history. Would you ever go back and write further back and write maybe your own novel set in the 50s or further? Oh, I would love to. I really struggle with being able to do it, which is again, because he, like, Colin Toyman doesn't always write historical. So it's kind of, it's interesting to me because I think often writers often only write historical fiction or they don't. Um, and it's a very different type of writing often because I know some historical fiction writers will spend like a year just researching, um, almost like an academic before they even start to write the story. Um, and I just can't, voice is a, is, a, is a real problem for me. I think I'd love doing all the research and, and sort of situating a story in a time period. Um, but I just can't, I tried to write something set in the 19th century once and it was just like, it was just the, most, the worst kind of pastiche, like this terrible kind of Victoriana voice was very, it was all very like, I don't know. Yeah, it was terrible. I'm not even gonna try and do it. It was so embarrassing <laughs> and it just didn't feel authentic. Like people were like, is it some weird parody? Like, what is it? And I just, yeah, capturing the voice without overdoing it is very hard. And then, I mean, I suppose you could just write it in a 21st century way, but yeah, it's just very confusing. Like form and voice, how do you, how do you use those things when you're writing about the past when without being anachronistic? I haven't figured it out, so. Yeah, I don't think I'll be doing it anytime soon. <laughs> Is there uh, another genre that you would like to write in, uh, aside from historical? Mm, I would love to write um, something that's in the kind of... I don't know whether it counts as science fiction or fantasy. Um, sort of like, I would say sort of fantasy, like, like kind of the Douglas Adams, Rivers of London, Terry Pratchett, that kind of good omensy kind of zone. Um, I love kind of like more recently, like Becky Chambers has written uh, the Wayfarer series, which is really kind of uplifting. My friend Emma calls it, or I don't know if she still calls it, but I remember she called it sort of drinking tea in space type sci-fi. Like it's it's not like hard sci-fi, but it's a kind of, it's like a kind of science fiction that it kind of looks at like what makes us human, I guess. And it's all about kind of humanness, but in the context of, of kind of fantastical and, and sort of outlandish things. I'd love to write like that. Like I love, um, I grew up reading that kind of thing. And I think there's a real kind of like, um, I love the, the world around it. I think readers are very um, sincerely into those things. And it feels like a very, yeah, it just feels very genuine. And um, there's a real genuine enthusiasm and energy in that world um, that, yeah, it feels very fresh. Um, so I'd love to do something that could contribute um, to that whole world of culture. What's your next choice? Um, the next choice was Rooftoppers by Catherine Rundle. Um, and I chose this uh, because it's a, it's a children's book, but I didn't read it as a child. Um, it came out in 2013, I think, so as, as a bookseller, but I read it um, actually a few years ago because um, I started teaching children um, uh, who are sort of year five, year six kind of age. and. Um, Rooftoppers, I remembered from my book selling days that it was a huge favourite of all the kids that came to the shop and you could just give them rooftoppers and they'd be completely blown away. So I was thinking, oh, and starting teaching creative writing classes for young children, um, I should try and understand what they actually want to, you know, to understand what they want to write, I have to understand what they read. Um, so I, I read this as the first book for that age group that I read as an adult. And um, I just thought, oh my God, it's incredible. It's so brilliant. And it completely blew me away. I was sort of expecting to read it like research, like to understand what the children are reading. And I just was completely caught up in the, the wonder of it. Um, so it kind of simply tells the story of this girl called Sophie who um, she's in this shipwreck and uh, she survives by hiding in a cello case um, and this academic called Charles rescues her and uh, takes her in and raises her as his own but she also wants to find her mother and she has this all these memories of her in Paris and there's something kind of calling to her in Paris and she thinks she'll find her there um and she so they do they go to Paris to try and look for her um and she ends up um meeting this uh young boy called Matteo who's a he's a rooftopper and he kind of runs around the the rooftops of um Paris at night um this sort of great uh kind of almost like parkour expertise and there's a real magic to it um and their friendship and um yeah it's it's uh there's something about the way she writes sentences that I love um that I think you get in children's writing that you don't necessarily get very often in adults writing 
where she'll begin a sentence and then sort of finish it and she'll leave you feeling so delighted and surprised by how that sentence finishes as if it's a magic trick. And there's something very charming and very, it's almost like poetry, um, really fantastic about that. What made you um, decide to start teaching creative writing and then specifically to year five and six age group? Um, I like teaching a lot and I, I think I didn't really know if I'd like teaching, but I thought that I would. I'm not very good at sitting alone in a room for a very long period of time on my own, which turns out writing is a lot to do with that. Um, so that was a nasty surprise when I sort of finished my MFA and realized that it wasn't all just uh, being really sociable in the library um, and going to class all the time. I was like, oh, wow, it's um, a lot of hard and lonely work. Um, so I think I was just looking for things that um, would, that felt like I was sort of, yeah, contributing to the world in a way that wasn't just sort of sitting uh, alone in a, in a room, um, honestly. Um, and yeah, it just, it, yeah, it just adds a bit of vibrancy to life, doesn't it? You've uh, you read this as an adult, and uh, you briefly mentioned uh, I capture the car. Well, you didn't briefly mention. You mentioned I capture the castle, um, having read that when you were twelve, and then you briefly mentioned Harry Potter. What books did you read as a child outside of those? Honestly, I did read a lot of Harry Potter. I remember reading Harry Potter for a whole summer and pretending to my parents that I'd read other books. I would sort of crease <laughs> the spines and be like, yes, they were very good and just reread Harry Potter obsessively. So that was that was the whole thing. Um, other, other books though, um, I read a lot of Neil Gaiman, obviously. Um, I, yeah, I love, I love his work. I suppose that was when I was a teenager though. I'm trying to think back to, to being God, this is terrible. I can't. I loved Philip Pullman, um, the His Dark Materials series. Um, they're obviously fantastic. Um, I think I read, you know, as, as a sort of uh, like a year five and six um, type age myself, I think I probably read like Jacqueline Wilson. Um, I remember reading Tracy Beaker. <laughs> um, yeah, I honestly, I honestly can't. I think kids books today, are, there's so many fantastic, brilliant ones. Whenever I'm in the kids section of a bookshop, I'm just um, so excited by everything. And I've been reading so many more um, since teaching, like the Robin Stevens books, the murder mystery ones, the murder most unladylike ones, and um, Catherine Woodfine, the, um, the mystery of the clockwork sparrow. And I read a great one. Um, Nizarana Farouk's The Girl Who Stole an Elephant, which I thought was fantastic. And I taught a bit with the kids and they loved it. So I don't know, I think I'm, I'm more excited about children's books today than I was then. But I, yeah, my memory is terrible. I'm sure if I thought about it <laughs> and look back at some old, I think I read a lot of Terry Pratchett as well, probably the Discworld. Um, yeah. It is interesting what you say. I mean, children's books, I, I feel like there there is a lot more of them. The market seems to be bigger now than when mm. I was a child um and actually I've I mean I've been reading a few like like the Robin Stevens books um mm. they are so good that I don't know why they're not being written for adults I mean the children are the, the main characters are children but mm. it doesn't it, I mean an adult will read that and enjoy it yeah yeah, and she has a real, like, the things I've, I've read by her talking about her book, she has a real love of murder mysteries and that kind of whodunit sort of fiction and, yeah, the way the plots work. Yeah, you can totally tell that they're written by someone that, that really loves and respects that kind of genre, which is, is very cool. Would you ever write a children's book yourself? I would love to, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely love to. Um, I feel like it would it would be a kind of logical thing to try and do <laughs> reading a lot of children's books this year and last year. Um, yeah, we'll see if I do one day. <laughs> Add it to the list. <laughs> yeah, bucket list. <laughs> yeah. What's your next book? So um, my next choice is The Private Joys of Nena Maloney by Okachukru Nzelu. And I chose this um, because... Um, last year so my short story collection escape routes came out and um just before lockdown hit so i had about a month of being able to do events and um, 
Uh, I thought that was one of the nicest things about having a book out that I didn't really anticipate was meeting other debut writers and being able to chat to them and hear them read their work and do events with them and then to be able to sort of go out and buy their books and read their books afterwards and then send them a message and being like wow your book was incredible and just feeling that sense of community and to meet these other people who are kind of roughly my age and at sort of similar stages in their careers who are making these absolutely incredible things that I just thought were yeah that you just sort of feel in awe of and it was yeah it was very exciting to be like oh wow I've suddenly got a ticket into this incredibly cool and exciting world um and then obviously lockdown happened and yeah um but uh, hopefully you know that that will you know things will uh, get a bit more sociable again um but I did an event um uh with okay Nzelu um it's called the Riff Raff and it was in Brixton in London and um there were I, I could have also chosen there was a book called The Art of the Body um, by Alex uh, Alexander J. Allison. I can't remember if he goes by Alex Allison or Ale Alexander J. Allison. Actually, sorry, I should have looked that up. But that is also a fantastic book. But I, um, I was, yeah, I, they were both at that event, and we were all reading. And um, I read those book, those two books afterwards, and I, I thought they were both absolutely incredible. Um, I put uh, Nana Maloney on the list uh, basically because it made me laugh, um, <laughs> and um, it has a similar thing to that Catherine Rundle thing of how the end of a sentence ends often is just so delightful and makes you burst out laughing um and I think people probably need a laugh uh in in, in this year um and it was just such a tonic for it's about serious things and it's a really serious you know proper um kind of rich story about uh, these characters um that gets to the heart of all sorts of things but it, it is a comedy as well in a in a sort of really lovely sense and it it um yeah, it cheered me up a lot in this sort of lockdown time. Obviously, you read that one because you were on the event with him and it was, it sort of, that came into your life that way. When you're mm. in a bookshop or browsing on the internet, say, how do you normally pick which books you're going to read? So recently, um, it has often been people I've come across at events um, or um, I read a, yeah, I read, I read a, a great short story collection um, by Francis Leveston because um, we were doing it, we were doing a, a virtual event together and that's another sort of highlight of things I read. So I think that that has been a, a sort of weird new way I've found books this year. Um, but yeah, back to your question, in, in bookshops, it's, it's kind of tricky. I think I rely on booksellers quite a lot. Um, I get to know the booksellers at, at my local bookstores and just ask them for <laughs> recommendations and for what's good and what's new. But it's been harder since not being able to go in, especially this this recent lockdown with sort of non-essential retail um, having to shut. Um, as so it should, it's been terrible. Um, but um, with, you know, with everything going on. But um, yeah, I think when you can't ask a bookseller, I think I've been, we've still been phoning up um, my boyfriend and I sort of call up the booksellers at our local bookstore and send them emails and sort of say like, what should we read? We're, we've, we feel in the mood for this. Um, so we're very lucky to live live with a bookshop um, close to us that will sort of do that. Um, yeah, and, and my, my old colleagues at Mr. B's Emporium are a great source of recommendations as well. So I'm, I'm very kind of old fashioned in that regard. I love a, a bookseller recommendation. I think humans can do it in a way that algorithms uh, can't quite um yeah and I, I I do yeah I do look out for for publishers as well to a certain extent like I think I notice if a if, a, if an editor or a publisher has published things that I think are really good I'll sort of notice oh it's the new one from them um and and sort of pick that up so yeah you mentioned uh escape routes your short story mm. collection what's the difference in for you in writing short story versus writing a novel which one's harder definitely writing a novel um <laughs> I think it would be nice to say oh it's a short story and actually it's not what you think but it is just harder because it's long and it's big and it's just really hard to keep the first you, you think it's okay at the beginning I'm, I'm sort of trying to write another one now and you think oh it's okay you know I'm, you know about thirty thousand words you're like yeah it's fine and then you realize all these things that you've set up and all these threads and these themes and these characters that were just kind of getting out of control and you, you sort of try and like juggle one one plot with these characters and they're like oh then I've dropped this thing over here um 
and it, it just becomes um, really messy um, and quite difficult to sort of keep it all in your head um, all at once. And it's very easy just to lose your thread, I found when writing a novel. And yeah, the amount number of novels that I've thrown away. Um, <laughs> I just feel like there's sort of one made it through and I managed it. I'm like, will I ever manage it again? <laughs> yeah, and I love writing short stories. They're, um, they're just lovely things to write because they're, it's just a different it's a different way of writing I think I I love reading poetry even though I, I cannot write it um for the life of me I just can't write poetry but I think for me writing a short story is the closest I could come to writing a poem it feels sort of similarly satisfying in that that kind of way how long does it take you to to write a short story uh, and how many drafts roughly do you do hmm. good question it varies a lot, as I'm sure it would for, for lots of people. Um, I wrote one that I really liked, I was really proud of um, in two weeks recently, and that's sort of a record for me. Uh, but then I've, I'd recently finished one that I started in, I think, the autumn of 2019. Uh, and I just keep, I like throw it away all the time. Well, I don't throw it away, but it's on my computer. And I just think, oh, I'll just, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. I'm putting it away. I'll just never touch that again. And then sort of three months later, I'm opening the file up again and spending a whole day messing with it. And I'm like, why am I doing this? It's a waste of time. Um, but I get slightly closer and then I sort of think, oh, it's broken. It's irreparably broken. And I put it away again and I'd keep taking it out and just messing with it. Um, yeah. So that one took about, a year, yeah, two years, <laughs> like a year and a half, maybe. Mm. But it's done now. Is, is there going to be another short story collection that it might feature in? Um, I don't know. It depends. No one wants to publish short stories. <laughs> so I don't know. Depends. Um, I haven't got enough. I have. I, I do like accumulating short stories and I do sort of hope one day that they'll find a home in a book somewhere. But I, in the meantime, I'm just sending them to like journals and competitions and stuff. It's just a nice thing to keep keep going in the background. Um, yeah. What is your last choice? My last choice um, was The Stopping Places by Damien Labar. And um, I chose this because uh, my novel, Common Grounds, features um, quite a few characters from the Romani community um, in England. And uh, I was really interested in this world when I started writing the book. And I sort of knew for various reasons, because it's a book that's about sort of land and who owns it and who has a right to be on the land. Um, that I wanted sort of to write about that community, but I, I didn't quite know where to start. And this was the first book that I read when I sort of began on um, all the research that I was doing and it completely blew me away. Um, I think because it opened, it's nonfiction, um, I'll say, and it's a kind of, it's a mem memoir, I'd say it's a mix of kind of travel writing and memoir in history. Um, and it's it works really well. It's sort of a really fluid mix of all those things. And it's um, the author, um, uh, he's sort of this young writer and he's trying to, um, he's, he's Romani himself, but he, he feels like he doesn't quite, um, like he's moving further away from sort of that heritage, um, for various reasons. And so he's sort of going back and tracing all of the stopping places around, um, uh, the UK and sort of tracing, uh, um, kind of Romani history, um, in, Sorry, I'm describing this really badly. Um, he's sort of, yeah, kind of finding an alternative history and geography of, of the country um, through kind of the world of um, the history of his own family and um, wider Romani history that he sort of researches and asks people about and um, uh, sort of tells tells readers about throughout the book. Um, yeah, and I think, I think it's a, yeah, it feels very natural, that sort of mix of sort of travel, nature writing, history. He goes a lot into etymology. Um, it's quite political as well, because he talks about sort of terrible prejudice against very many people that exist in this country um, at the moment. But it, it feels very fluid and natural. Um, like it's a book that makes perfect sense and that's how it should be. Um, and it's, yeah, it's very, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of almost lyrically written, but it never feels like flowery or anything. It just feels really sort of direct and um, authentic. It's a book I connected to a lot, I think, because it's about having sort of one foot in many worlds. And um, part of the book is him trying to 
figure out where he fits and where his own identity can sort of reconcile with this sort of wider sense of Romany identity. And I think that's some, that's question of identity and and where you where you fit and what your own cultural identity is and where you where you belong. It's it's a similar question to that where is home thing we were talking about earlier. But it's something that's interested me a lot and um, that I was thinking a lot about writing Common Ground and I just think about in my own life anyway. So I think that kind of deeper theme of the book really um, I really loved and connected to as well. When you were reading this and and doing other research for Common Ground. Did you find that some of the stuff that you were learning, you have to then go, oh, okay, that's actually going to completely change my plot or, or did it support what you were trying to do? Um, I think I did a lot of research before starting writing. So that was kind of helpful for not having to rewrite sections. Um, I did... I did have like a, a sensitivity read um, is what they call it. So having someone who sort of knows much more about that world um, have a read of the book before uh, moving on to other stages of publishing. And I had um, I had the characters moving around a little bit more. Um, I'm not quite sure why, I just kind of had them moving around a lot more. <laughs> and uh, the guy who did it very helpfully um, uh, sort of was pointed out that actually um, traveler families would sort of stick in the same, typically stick in the same kind of zone they wouldn't be going to like Scotland and then Norfolk and then like the south of England and then Cornwall and I think I just kind of had in my head like I want to write this great novel of Britain and had people kind of moving around all the time um and it just was kind of absurd and I was like actually yeah no why would why would your general beat like why would your circuit be that geographically insane like that there'd be um that doesn't make sense <laughs> um, so I did have to rewrite that a bit and it sort of had to calm down and it became much more there was a section in Scotland and stuff like that it became more a sort of novel that was set in England and I think that actually works better because I I have I'm half Scottish but I don't know Scotland very well at all so it felt a bit kind of strident to be trying to make points about Scotland and <laughs> ethnic minorities in Scotland I was like oh I don't know I can't I can't write about that so it sort of helped the book a lot in many ways as well as just being fact more factually correct. Um, you mentioned earlier about how um, sort of the the idea of land and who owns what um, mm. sort of was one of the starting points of, of this book but what was it specifically that made you think I'm going to write about the Romani community in this book? Um, I think that it was that idea of land because um, it is it's called common ground it's very much they meet on the common and I think I was becoming quite interested in so when I lived in Bath um, like I've always liked like music and I sort of got into the habit of singing uh, it sounds like a complete non sequitur but I will get to the point <laughs> I got in the habit of singing at these open mic nights all the time and there's a real um there's a really strong busking community in Bath um where it's like a whole it's a whole world um it really is a whole world and a lot of the buskers came to the open mic nights so I got to know them and became friends with them and talking about busking and having a lot of conversations with people who that's often their main livelihood um I sort of started thinking a lot about public space and space and what you're allowed to do in certain spaces and why I felt like I wasn't allowed to like sing in the street or like why sometimes you weren't allowed. And yeah, I think, yeah, a lot of those, those people kind of wanted to lead slightly different lifestyles as well from sort of conventional um, ways of doing things. And I think that I just sort of started thinking about like, yeah, why is everything privately owned? Um, why are we not allowed to just be places? Why can't we wild camp legally in in the UK? And it, I just never really occurred to me before to question these things. I just always be like, you know, you have school and you're not allowed to do most things at school. And then that's kind of where I was. I'd been to university and then I was there. And I was like, God, why aren't why aren't you allowed to just be in so many places? And then trying to be a writer as well you're always looking for somewhere, like some space in which to write, but you're always being sort of, you know, people are like, oh, can I help you? Do you want to buy another cappuccino? And you're like, oh, I've only been here for, and then, you know, the, and there's the public libraries, but then they're, you know, often being closed down and having opening hours limited and people are not as valued by society as they should be. So I think I was thinking of all these questions of like literal space for people to be in is in really short supply <laughs> in England, weirdly, um, since you'd think we'd have enough space for the people. Um, and then I was thinking, God, this is something I really want to write about. And I thought, who who really suffers from this? Like who is who has the worst experience of, of not feeling like they're welcome on any of the space of this country like like for for which 
you know, what kind of character would would suffer the most from this problem? And then obviously I thought, oh, it would be probably a like a traveler of some kind. And then um, I sort of knew more about like the, the, the sort of the little I did know was um, about the Romany world. Um, I, don't think I, I don't think I've met any Irish travelers or anything. Um, so that was kind of immediately I, I wanted to to sort of research and learn more about that and um, make that a part about Part of the book so that was a long story of how how that came to be um yeah <laughs> hope it makes it's sense really, it's really interesting though thank you um <laughs> if i made you pick just one of these seven books as being the most important one to you which one would you pick no um i'd probably pick i catch the castle do people always do that to pick the first one <laughs> i'd probably pick that one um because it's been with me the longest and um yeah, I think the the um, the other books, yeah, they're just sort of more more recent in terms of sort of becoming really important for my life today and who I am now and the kind of writer I am. But I Catch the Castle um, has been a book I've read, yeah, since I was I was very young. Um, so it definitely feels like it it sort of defined me on some very like essential level. <laughs> so yeah, I'd, I'd pick that, and it's just it's so lovely as well. Um, it's just a world that you can you can sink into it feels so three-dimensional and um it has a real i think it's a it's a book that really loves books and and music and and things like that it sort of reminds me why these things are important when i when i pick it up again so yeah i choose that one obviously publication day is coming very soon uh for common ground how are you planning to celebrate it's quite difficult, um, given <laughs> given the situation. Um, I think a lot of writers are having this this kind of conundrum. Um, my my dad has publication day yesterday, and he he sort of forgot almost. I think that it was it was the day until people started. He got sent a massive cake from his publisher in the shape oh. of his book, which was um, very exciting because <laughs> uh, he loves cake. Um, so I don't know. I'll probably have some cake. Um, I think we're doing a, a there's a sort of little virtual razor glass. People that have worked on the book and um, a few friends but I think it's going to be quite quiet honestly um but there are a few events and uh, things coming up I'm doing one um at the uh Exeter Library um event and uh, the South Bank event uh which is a joint event with my dad who's Kazuro Shiguro um so we're both talking about about books and things um so that's that's all kind of around the day of publication so hopefully it should feel um quite exciting if yeah if a bit virtual <laughs> and what are you working on next I'm trying to write a novel. Um, we'll see how it's going. I'm around that sort of 30,000 word mark where I've thrown a lot of things away. Um, so I think I'll probably print it off. It's probably a terrible thing to do because of the, the, the state of the world currently, but I find it very hard to read on the screen. Um, and I, I'll probably read it and and see whether whether it's worth, <laughs> worth continuing. Um, I'm trying to write a sort of fairy tale for adults set in, I try to sort of blend escape routes and common ground. I like I, I like the kind of I like trying to write in the real world and I liked being able to throw in loads of kind of real world world references of like the music and the food and the just normal everyday things in common ground I love being able to put them in fiction um but I do love the kind of structure and the wonder of fairy tales so I'm trying to sort of somehow mesh the two together and whether or not it's working is is debatable but we'll see <laughs> Well, it sounds really interesting. Uh, I hope it does oh. work for you. Um, and <laughs> I can't you. wait to have a, have a little read of it. Uh, Naomi Ishiguru, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. My guest on Shelf Life this week was Naomi Ishiguro, and her novel, Common Ground, is published on the 25th of March. It's available to order right now on birtsbooks.co.uk. Join me again next time when another guest will be exploring their shelf life.